there is no negotiated future here, at least not unless the battlefield significantly shifts against the military and they feel backed into a corner, although that might only convince them to fight harder. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. In late July, the military junta in Myanmar carried out its first executions in decades. Four activists were killed, including very prominent pro-democracy leaders. The military carried out these executions despite widespread international and regional pressure. The executions come a year and a half after the February 1st, 2021 coup that ended Myanmar's experiment in democracy. The military has imprisoned much of the civilian political leadership of the country, including Myanmar's de facto civilian leader, Aung San Suu Kyi. The February 2021 coup was met by widespread civil disobedience and eventually armed resistance. Today, Myanmar is in the midst of a multi-pronged civil war in which the military is fighting various armed groups organized along ethnic lines of Myanmar's many minority ethnic communities. The military is also battling militias backed by the toppled civilian leadership. On the line to discuss recent events in Myanmar and the evolving dynamics of this conflict is Gregory Poling. He directs the Southeast Asia Program and the Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, where he is also a senior fellow. We kick off discussing the recent executions in Myanmar and have a broader discussion about the changing contours of the conflict and what, if anything, the United States and broader international community can do to influence events in Myanmar. The conflict in Myanmar has very much been pushed off the front pages of newspapers here in the United States, particularly since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Yet this conflict grinds on and is a continuing source of instability and insecurity. And now here is my conversation with Gregory Poling of the Center for Strategic and International Studies. The junta, the military junta in Myanmar, decided to go ahead with these executions, all four being described as pro-democracy activists. One of them was actually a former parliamentarian with the National League for Democracy, the former government led by Aung San Suu Kyi that was ousted in a coup now more than a year and a half ago. Another was a very well-known, long-time activist, what was called the 88 Generation Group, who had opposed the previous military junta. And then two others were not as well known, not as prominent. All four were executed despite pleas from the whole international community, and especially Myanmar's neighbors in Southeast Asia, including Hun Sen, the prime minister of Cambodia, who currently holds the ASEAN chair, who had made a personal plea 
to Minong Lang, the general who leads the military junta in Myanmar. So not only was it kind of beyond the pale that they executed these four pro-democracy activists in the first executions in Myanmar in decades, but that they really kind of slapped Hun Sen in the face and then spit in the face of their fellows in ASEAN that made this such a geopolitical big deal. I mean, it is worth emphasizing that despite the deprivations that this junta has imposed upon the Burmese people for a long time, these sort of like quasi-judicial executions just haven't happened in decades. That's right. I mean, this is a brutal junta, and I mean brutal in ways that are often hard to comprehend, particularly toward ethnic minorities, those who have been fighting for independence for decades and decades. The Tatmadaws, it's called the Burmese army, engages in widespread extrajudicial killings, torture, rape, burning of whole villages. But they don't publicly execute people, or at least they hadn't. Um, and they particularly hadn't publicly executed Burman, meaning the majority ethnic Burman activists, in decades. And what is the significance of the fact that they did indeed execute these ethnic Burmans despite? the pleas not only of like the United States and of Western leaders, but of leaders within their own regions, within ASEAN. In part, you might say that this shows the military leadership going more into siege mode, although what exactly Minong Hlaing and those around him are thinking is anybody's guess. But this is a pretty clear sign that they have no interest in dealing with the opposition. They have no interest in what international parties have to say about the matter. They're willing to break every taboo and burn society to the ground if that's what it takes to maintain power. So I wanted to go back a little bit and have you explain how we got to this point. In the immediate aftermath of the coup in February 2021, we saw just massive civil disobedience by Burmese in many parts of the country, which was followed by a swift and brutal crackdown by the military. Can you just explain how that civil disobedience has evolved, and also how armed resistance to the junta has sprouted up in the period since the coup in February 2021. So the coup was launched on February 1st, 2021. It was the end of a month-long saga of Minong Hlaing, who was the commander-in-chief of the army at the time, complaining about alleged irregularities in the election of late 2020, all of which seem to have been invented. But the bottom line is that the military and its favorite party were embarrassed by the overwhelming victory of Aung San Suu Kyi's National League for Democracy in yet another election. And so they launched this coup and almost immediately you have a civil disobedience movement, what became known as the CDB, pop up across the country in both Burman majority districts in the lowlands, the heart of the country, and up in the highlands and ethnic minority areas in which people at first took to the streets in protest. But even after the junta cracked down pretty brutally on those street protests, people continued to refuse to pay taxes, refuse to pay their energy bills. Teachers refused to go teach. Doctors refused to show up to work at state-owned hospitals. I mean, a real effort to just shut down all parts of society linked to or that might give legitimacy to this new military government. And that continues to this day in a lot of ways, including folks still not showing up to work in many cases and not paying their electricity bills. In the meantime, the armed opposition began to coalesce. So you had what started as members of the civil disobedience movement and those linked to the former 
leadership of the National League for Democracy, which had, had been running the country since the last election, start to shift from just uh, passive, nonviolent opposition to armed resistance over the course of many months. A lot of this ended up being grassroots-led. So you had what are called People's Defense Forces, the PDFs, hundreds of these, arguably, that sprouted up all over the country. And these PDFs, it's worth emphasizing, these are essentially like cells, right? Like resistance cells? That's right. These are comparatively tiny, usually locally based, let's say a single village, a single township, rising up to oppose the forces of the junta. And at the beginning, they had very little connection to any formal opposition. So while this was happening, you did have the core of what's now the opposition government forming on the border with Thailand. So kind of half in Thailand, half in the borderlands. That at first was called the Committee to Represent the Pidong Suhutong, which is the parliament. So these were all former parliamentarians who had escaped after the coup and made the core of this opposition. That eventually morphed into what's now called the NUG, the National Unity Government. And that's because these parliamentarians in the Committee to Represent the Pidong Suhutong brought in a bunch of others, mainly ethnic minority organizations and civil society organizations. They formally abrogated the 2008 constitution under which they had been parliamentarians, and they've set up this new interim government, including a an interim constitution, though it's, this charter is very vague. So they are the core of what's now thought of as the opposition government. But they exercise, at best today, maybe control over half of the PDFs, and that's very loose control. Still, probably half of these PDFs operate entirely independently, just fighting the junta based on local grievance. And then you can't talk about any of this without talking about what are called the EAOs, the ethnic armed organizations. So the EAOs are a hodgepodge of a couple dozen different ethnic minority-based armies, mostly operating in the borderlands up, up in the hills, that have been fighting the junta for decades, some of them since independence, immediately after World War II. They've got most of the guns in the opposition. There's the most effective fighting force. Some of the PDFs are closely aligned with the EAOs. The EAOs have a very contentious relationship with the national unity government. And so you've really got this multi-pronged civil war now in which the junta on its best day might control 40% of the country. Some of the EAOs control their own fiefdoms that are quite large. The NUG controls very little of the country, but can claim a significant amount of legitimacy, at least in the eye of the international community, and nobody can get the upper hand. It's worth perhaps you know, spending a little more time discussing these ethnic armed organizations, these EAOs, because as you noted, many of these entities have been fighting the military for generations at this point. They have their own histories. They have their own objectives. And you noted that these are indeed the most effective fighting forces against the military junta at this point. Can you just perhaps paint that landscape a, a little bit and describe who these groups are? So the largest of the EAOs, those who in many cases share the names of whatever state they're in. So in Karen State or Cayenne State, as the junta renamed it, you have the Karen National Union, which is the political arm of the Karen National Liberation Army which has been fighting the Burmese state since 1947. I mean, it's arguably the longest running civil war in the world. And they have been fighting for most of that time for outright independence, although at times they may have accepted autonomy within a federal union. 
that's on the border with Thailand. If you start moving up the Burmese border and then around, you get the Kareni. The Shan state, which is the largest state, is home to numerous ethnic armed organizations. There's two major armed organizations based on the Shan ethnicity, which is the majority in that state, but then there's several others, the Palong or Taong, among others. Up in the very far north, you have the Kachin. The Kachin Independence Army is probably the second most effective fighting force behind the Karen at the moment. And they have highlands up on the Chinese border. And then you come back down the coast, you have the Chin fighting along the Indian border. And you end with the Arakan Army in Rakhine State. The Arakan Army has been most effective in seizing control of their own state since the coup. At this point, the Arakan Army controls most of Rakhine State. It's functionally independent and is unaligned with either the junta or the national unity government. So you've described just like a multitude of armed ethnic armies operating in Myanmar. And, you know, I think it's fair to say, as you suggested earlier, that they will likely have a tense relationship with the national unity government, which is made up of the ethnic majority group to whom they have long opposed and and taken up arms. Is there any attempt or opportunity for reconciliation between the national unity government and many, if not most, of these armed ethnic organizations? This is really the million-dollar question, because as I said earlier, the national unity government controls very little, if any, of the country. They have very little control over the PDFs, the local fighting forces, and they don't have the strength to take the fight to the top medal, to the military, without support from these EAOs, these ethnic armed organizations, who are by far the most effective fighting forces opposed to the junta. Since the coup, the NUG and its precursors have found sanctuary and some support from some of the EAOs. Many of them operate in areas controlled by or adjacent to those areas controlled by the Karen, the Karen National Union. But only parts of the KNU actually support the opposition. Parts of them just want to stay neutral. And there's a significant amount of distrust there. I mean, for many Karen, like all the ethnic armed organizations, the junta, of course, is the brutal enemy to be opposed at all costs, but they're not quite sure that the NUG is any better. They believe that Aung San Suu Kyi was better, and they feel that she betrayed promises of true federalism and peace. And so I think they're very hesitant to throw their lot in entirely with any Burman majority force, whether it's the NUG or the junta. The Kachin Independence Army has been loosely aligned with the NUG since the coup, but has kept its distance. It does work quite closely with some of the PDFs, and it has used the coup as an opportunity to redouble its own offensives against the junta. But that doesn't mean that it's going to subject itself to centralized command and control or anything, or be part of a federal army with the NUG. The Kareni and the Chin are the two who have probably been most closely aligned with the NUG, but they're not large enough fighting forces to make a difference here. The largest ethnic army in the country is actually the WA, what's called the United WA State Army, up in the northern corner of Shan State, and they're staying out. They've got very close ties to China. They effectively control their own independent fiefdom. They don't really care who wins this fight as long as they get to stay independent. The swing vote here might end up being the Arakan Army. They have a very contentious ceasefire right now with the junta. If that breaks, it'll stretch the top at all very thin. If they threw in their lot wholly with the NUG, it could make the difference here. But their top priority is not to help Burmans recover their capital. It's to carve out an independent Arakan state, and they'll take whatever path is the best way to do that. So you've described just like a very 
unstable conflict right now with a multitude of parties pursuing their own narrow interests with a single military unable to take on all of their opponents at once. How has regional bodies like ASEAN approached this civil war uh, since it's escalated in recent months? Has ASEAN perhaps changed its initial approach to the coup from the early days? ASEAN has really been stuck, mired in an inability to, I think, admit to reality and deal proactively with what's actually happening in Myanmar. And in in ASEAN's defense, it's not as if there are any easy answers here, but Myanmar is one of the 10 members. It has a seat in the organization. There is nothing in the organization's laws, charter, that allow for the ejection of a member. There's no precedent for ASEAN to weigh in on one side or the other. The fundamental kind of rules, such as there are of ASEAN, are consensus-based decision-making and non-interference in the domestic affairs of member states. And so ASEAN has been extremely hesitant to weigh in explicitly too much on the crisis because they don't want to be seen as interfering. The most that they've been able to do is disinvite Minamai and, in some cases, other senior cabinet ministers from the junta, uh, disinvite them from ASEAN meetings and insist they send non-political, so professional bureaucrats instead, which hasn't usually worked. They early on, a few months after the coup, negotiated what, what's been called the five-point consensus with Minamai, five points to try to bring peace to the conflict, which included the establishment of a special envoy from ASEAN, that special envoy being allowed to meet with all sides of the conflict, an immediate cessation of hostilities, access for a humanitarian corridor. Other than the appointment of the special envoy, none of that has happened. The junta has refused to let the envoy meet with Aung San Suu Kyi. There's been no real discussions with the national unity government. And obviously, violence hasn't stopped. So what has finally happened in the last few months, and particularly accelerated after these recent executions, is that some members of ASEAN, Malaysia probably being the most forward-leaning, are just disgusted, disgusted with what they see from the junta and are willing to now move beyond the ASEAN consensus. And that's putting an enormous amount of pressure on the organization. The other thing that we have to recognize, though, is that the generals don't seem to care. They don't seem to care what ASEAN thinks any more than they care what the U.S. or anybody else thinks. The only country in ASEAN that has any significant influence in Myanmar is Thailand, and that's because it shares a border. And Thailand is very loath to get involved. What explains Thailand's hesitancy? Well, it probably doesn't help that Thailand is currently led by a military general who himself came to power in a coup, Prait Chan-o-cha, who has a close connection of sorts with men online, and so they have a personal connection that seems to keep Thailand out of the fray. Although the Supreme Court of Thailand has suspended Prait Chan-o-cha, at least for a month, so Thai politics could change. But Thailand, you know, Thailand has been a front seat spectator to chaos in Myanmar for decades now. It hosts a huge population of Burmese refugees and those from the Karen, Karen and others along the border. It has had to deal with all of the effects of that instability of these ungoverned spaces on the border for decades, whether it's through drug trafficking, people trafficking, arms trafficking, violent crime, gambling. And so Thailand's number one concern has been to shore up the border and try to keep the violence from spilling over. 
it seems very hesitant to get proactively involved, perhaps because it doesn't believe that the opposition can actually win. That's probably why Pride wants to keep out. But perhaps more generally, because it assumes that there are no good solutions at all and that getting involved will only get it sucked into chaos. So you've described like a diplomatic context that seems very sort of stuck in the rut at the moment with very little progress. You've also described a similar military situation on the ground in which the national unity government cannot be expected to make huge territorial gains. Neither can the Tatmadaw. Meanwhile, all these ethnic organizations have their own interests that they are pursuing. Yet you wrote recently that in the midst of this sort of morass, you do see an opportunity for the United States government in particular to take some meaningful steps that might tilt the situation in the favor of the national unity government. Can you explain your suggestions there? I think the time has come for the United States to make a difficult decision on Myanmar policy. We've been essentially tinkering for a year and a half. I think everybody's assumption early on was that, unfortunately, the junta would eventually crush the opposition and reimpose control, which they've done repeatedly for decades ever since independence. But now we're a year and a half into this opposition. The PDFs and the AOs are holding their own. The military is losing control of the country. There is no negotiated future here, at least not unless the battlefield significantly shifts against the military and they feel backed into a corner although that might only convince them to fight harder. But so much of our conversations have been focused around, should we sanction this specific entity? Should we try to cut off hard currency of the regime in that specific way? What should be the language of this diplomatic missive? And it all misses the fundamentals. This is a revolutionary war being fought against a brutal, insular junta that does not care and will not negotiate. The only way this is going to be resolved is on the battlefield. Either the opposition will lose or the junta will lose. And if the U.S. accepts that, then its options become much clearer, even if not particularly palatable. Either the United States can recognize and support the opposition or some coalition of the opposition, or it can sit back and watch as either the state fractures, which seems the most likely option, or the junta wins, which I don't actually think they can at this point. And by support, you don't necessarily automatically mean military support for the national unity government, at least not as it exists today. I don't believe that the national unity government should be recognized diplomatically as a formal representative of Myanmar. They should not be given formal diplomatic recognition at this moment, nor should they receive direct security assistance from the United States because they don't actually control any significant amount of the country, nor can they claim legitimacy any more than several other of the Poles fighting in the country right now. If the national unity government were actually able to form some kind of coalition, whether it's a loose confederacy or a tight federal structure, something that brings a critical mass of the AOs on board, that promises a future federal or confederal Myanmar, then that's a force that the United States should recognize. That would be a force that would clearly have a claim to national legitimacy, and that would be able to win this fight. To do otherwise, to recognize the current NUG without any conditionality on kind of support from the AOs, would be to wade into a multi-pronged civil war on behalf of one party and not even one of the strongest parties. 
But are you seeing any indication that the NUG is making entreaties to these other ethnic armed organizations to create a sort of umbrella group to take on the Tatmadaw? The NUG has conducted outreach, I think kind of honest and sincere outreach, more than we've seen from any previous Burman-dominated political entity in the history of Myanmar. Early on, they established what was called the National Unity Consultative Council, the NUCC, which involves representatives from the NUG as well as several of the ethnic armed organizations and ethnic civil society organizations. They also, one of the reasons that they replaced the committee to represent the Pidong Suhutal with this national unity government was so that they could move the Burman-dominated National League for Democracy leadership back a bit and put more ethnic minority leaders into place. So the current acting president among several of the cabinet are ethnic minority members in the NUG, although they are not representatives of the ethnic armed organizations. The problem right now is twofold. The NUCC process seems to be stuck if it hasn't collapsed. And partially that's because the NUG made the decision, I think the well-intentioned but somewhat naive decision, to give a bunch of civil society organizations equal voice with the ethnic armed organizations. And from the EAO's point of view, this is a war. And the guys with the guns who are on the battlefield who are actually necessary to win it should be the ones who have the biggest say at this moment. So that turned off a lot of the EAOs who may have otherwise been interested. Second, and this is somewhat beyond the NUG's control, for a lot of the EAOs, there is a cold, rational calculation here that perhaps the best way to secure their interests, which is autonomy above all else, is not by supporting the NUG, but by using this moment to carve out as much control as they can solidify their own bases. And so for groups like the Khan Army or the United Law State Army, they see relatively little to gain by throwing their lot in with the NUG and fighting the Tatmadaw, and a whole lot more to gain by using the distraction of these two Burma majority forces fighting each other to strengthen their own independent states. The NUG has a lot that they would have to get over to make this happen. I still think it's possible. And one of the things I noted in the article is that the U.S. government currently has $1 billion in Burmese government funds and reserves being held in U.S. financial institutions that we've banned the Tatmadaw from accessing. The promise of access to that $1 billion would be a significant incentive to get some of the EAOs to at least consider working more closely with the NUG, as would the promise of U.S. recognition for whatever system they come up with. But that, at least in the near term, does not seem to be in the offing. Perhaps not. And look, this is not a palatable answer. But if there is no pass forward, to the NUG forming a new federal government, then perhaps the best option for the U.S. for the time being will be to continue to sit on the sidelines and muddle through because it is not in the interest of the United States to wade into a civil war or to extend a civil war that the NUG cannot win. And if the NUG can't form a coalition with the ethnic armed organizations, then what's going to happen is going to be state collapse. There will be multiple de facto independent states along the border led by these EAOs who the United States will have to work with in one form or another, and there will be collapse at the center. 
Lastly, in the coming weeks or months even, are there any inflection points that you will be looking towards that will suggest to you whether that outcome you just described is more or less likely to come to fruition? Well, there's one potential shoe to drop that I think a lot of people have been watching for at least a year, which is the increasing strain on the Tatmadaw's ceasefire with the Arakan army. If it breaks, then everything could change. It's not the Tatmadaw, despite being stronger than any one of the EAOs, or maybe even all the EAOs and the NUG, is stretched extremely thin, having to fight on so many fronts at once and maintain internal security in the cities. If they have to open a whole new front against such a strong EAO in, in Arakan State, it may push them close to a breaking point. But again, only if the NUG and some significant number of EAOs decide, you know, see their opportunity to throw their lot in with each other and make that happen. So that could be one thing that breaks the situation open. The other could simply be slow battlefield gains over the next several months. One of the keys to the fighting has been the monsoon cycles in, in Myanmar, in which during the dry season, the top Madal is able to bring its air power and its artillery to bear and make significant gains traditionally. And then in the wet season, the EAO has managed to claw some of that back in lower level fighting when the Tatmadaw can't use its air power. The assumption early in the coup was that the Tatmadaw would use the dry season to crush this opposition. Well, it's now been two dry seasons and they have not made appreciable gains, which means that they've taken their best shots and they haven't worked. If the NUG and the PDS can claw back more territory during this wet season, it could continue to eat away at the top of Dahl's resilience. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Global Dispatches. Our show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg, and edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you have any questions or comments, please email us using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com or hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg. Please rate and subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts.